The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I'm so excited to have Elizabeth Davis with me. And Elizabeth is the author of Heart and Hands, A Midwife's Guide to Pregnancy and Birth. And she's spoken all over the world. She she is involved with the Nationally, National Midwifery Institute, has a ton of experience as a midwife. And we are going to be talking about um, what the current world looks like in midwifery and orgasmic birth. So I'm really excited to ask you lots of questions. All right. Yeah, <laughs> so first of all, how did you get into this? Because, you know, how did you fall into the birth world? <laughs> um, well, I'm a child of the 60s. So, or rather, so you know. Say no I, more. Is that what you're yeah. saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, um, we were the back to the landers, like like looking at sustainability before that was a term that everybody knew. And hospital birth at the time was so far from um, humane. That oh, yeah. It's shocking. I mean, and uh, for me, of course, I wanted a home birth, but I, I couldn't find a midwife. They well, were hard to come by. Did How many people even consider home birth or was that what? Only- well, there were the fringe of us that did. I was living <laughs> in rural um, Oregon at the time. and. Um, I just happened to fall upon a couple of books. Um, the one that was the only one that really talked about home birth was called Common Sense Childbirth, and it's a classic. Um, and it convinced me that I could do it. Sheila Kitzinger also, the experience of childbirth, so powerful to see those pictures of her birthing her twins at home. Mm. And I just, I just thought I can do this. So I, um, I looked and looked and finally, uh, ran into a pregnant woman in town and I went up to her and said, you know, what do you know? Do you know anything? She said, well, you, you know, this is my third baby and um, I'm happy to invite you to my birth. <gasps> Just yeah. a random stranger. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I well, love this. You know, she was, she was a, a sweet woman and, and uh, I said, okay, okay. I was 20, yeah. you know, I'm ready to go. And, um, so she gave birth in a milk shed um, with no assistance, but actually the people that were there were, they were the adoptive couple. Oh was my her goodness. Third baby. She didn't feel that she had the resources to have a third. And these friends of hers had tried forever to have a baby. And she decided that she would give them this baby. Wow. So not only did I see birth in the flesh, the real power of it, but I saw her hand her newborn to the adoptive mother who put it to her breast. Even now. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And I I remember what I was wearing that day. I remember my body that day. It's just birth has that power to impact us and imprint us. I was going to say, it sounded like you imprinted on the most powerful human experience. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that was my initiation. However, well, well, of course, what happened after was I, I went to her and I said, um, will you be my midwife? And she said, well, I'm not a midwife, <laughs> but I will be at your birth. So the tough part came when I went into labor a month early and she wasn't, was not in town Mm. and I had to face the, I did not have any information. All I had were some basic supplies. I had really no support. We, we lived an hour and a half away in, you know, a rural area, hour and a half away from a hospital and old pickup trucks, snowing outside. Wow. Nobody should have to make that kind of choice. Yeah. And I did go to the hospital because I didn't know what else to do. I was worried about premature and all of that was on my mind. So I did have quite a brutal experience with that birth. And, and they really, I call it the dark ages of childbirth where mm-hmm. they used to tie women down and they tied me down. Um, they didn't give me any drugs. I wouldn't let them give me any pain medication. But what they did give me was Pitocin. And they gave it to me orally. And it, it triggered this unbelievably painful fast. I mean, it, I had 10 seconds between contractions. So there was a lot of screaming going on. No time to catch your breath. No time to No, it was beyond that. It was Mm -hmm. so painful because there was no accommodation. You know, you just shoot to the top. There's nothing gradual about it. Yeah, there's no build. Yeah. It's like slam. It it really was very violent experience. And the hardest, maybe the worst part of all was um, they cut a lateral episiotomy. Um. I'm doing the math on that one. Yeah, well, you know, that's not, that's contraindicated in every textbook you ever read. And who cuts the vagina sideways and expects oh. it to reapproximate and heal? You oh know? my gosh. So I was in so much pain almost immediately from that. And they said, Would you like something for the pain? Now, mind you, I wanted my son right away. And they said, Well, he's cold. He's not breathing properly. He needs to go to the nursery. And you know, that's that moment of becoming, really becoming a mother. I said, just do whatever is best for him. Yeah. What are you supposed to do at that point? What what do you do? So Mm -hmm. the pain, would you like something? Yes. I wake up seven hours later, not having seen or held my son. And I knew about bonding. I knew what happens with mammals when their bonding is interrupted. I know what that instinctive rejection response is like. When they, when they finally brought him to me, they had pomaded his hair. They'd styled his, just. So, you know, I, I figured it out. I, we're getting out of here. You know, they're not going to let us out. We're going into the nursery. We're picking him up. We're walking out the door. I'm going home. And I'm going to breastfeed this baby and it's going to be okay. Well, he's, what is he, 46 right now? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it all worked out. It all worked wow. out. Wow. And they let you walk out of the hospital? No big deal. Well, not, not, you know, they were threatening, but what could they really do? You know, they couldn't. In those days, there wasn't like child protective services. We didn't have to worry about that aspect of the way mm-hmm. that hospitals protect themselves, quote unquote. Um, with threats like that. Um, So two years later, I'm pregnant again, and now I'm in California, and now I've found a midwife, and now I'm going to have a home birth. So um, 
It was just glorious. I mean, it was unforgettably wonderful and beautiful and magnificent. And, you know, I remember the day, it was a sunny January day and the lobelia was blooming in my pot, my flower, you know, pot right outside my bedroom window. And uh, I, it was a posterior labor. I mean, it was no piece of cake as far as that goes. But I, I got to that place where I, I, I really felt the ecstasy of birth. And I also experienced the transformation of my previous experience. I know wow. I was re-imprinting myself as a birthing person. Yeah. And those hours of being like somewhere around eight centimeters, you know, mm-hmm. and just doing that deep, deep work. Deep, deep work. And the, the orgasmic part, I didn't, I mean, I didn't, that was not in my vocabulary with birth. You didn't put those two words together. Um, and yet, because I was so worried about tearing over that episiotomy scar, I just totally got, I, I became my vagina, let's put it like that. I was oh, so, very cool. so inside and really, really trying to feel everything so that I wouldn't blow it and push it too hard or, you know, I couldn't go through that endless pain without it lasted forever. And, and in that process of being my vagina, so to speak, and really feeling my daughter's head and, and, and letting all that pressure happen, my breathing changed. You know, it became, when they say breathe your baby out, I hadn't heard that phrase either, but it was all... <sighs> You know, I was so into it. And when she was born, I remember the feeling of her body coming through me and the this crescendo of sensation and emotion. There you well, have even it. Even 44 years later, <laughs> you still can feel that in your body. Like yeah. your body remembers yeah. this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So orgasmic birth was just, again, you know, I didn't, we didn't have that language, but... Uh, meeting Deborah Pascali Bonaro, um, I don't remember how long ago, it must have been about, oh, 14 years ago, something like that, at a conference. And uh, she was working up this project on orgasmic birth. And I went up to her and we, you know, became fast friends. And um, she said, you know, I've, I've, I've got these film clips and I'm showing them around the world. And every time I do, women come up afterwards and they say, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like this taboo. <laughs> you know, I the first time I saw the clips, I'm sure we're talking about the same ones. Yeah. First time I saw the clips, I was like, are we allowed to watch? The, like, is somebody checking my adult card? Like, am I old <laughs> enough to watch these? <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's great that you watched them when you were however old you were. But um, yeah, and so wanting, you know, the book came around because I suggested it. I said, I'm sure people are asking you, is there a book and how do we do this? And and I was primed to write that I really wanted to write a book that started with the physiology of birth, mm-hmm. which is the first chapter. What is birth? Looking at the physiology, the hormones, the change in brainwave frequency, how we go into an altered state physiologically. And then once all of that's laid out, then let's talk about options of where you give birth. And let's talk about how birth in the hospital typically derails the, the, not just the 
the physiology, but the transcendence that's inherent yeah. in the birth experience, you know? So um, I hope you'll all check that book out. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, Come on. I want to ask too, what you mean by orgasmic? Like, are you literally meaning mm-hmm. orgasm? So like, talk us through what an orgasmic oh, birth is and we, isn't. We very broadly interpret that phrase. So there's an orgasm and then there's orgasmic. So what is orgasmic? It's ecstatic. It's juicy. It's transcendent. It's sensual. It's powerful. It's, it's. So like my favorite ice cream. Well. Like eating yeah. my favorite ice cream could be described as orgasmic a little bit, yeah, right? I mean, okay. I've even done research <laughs> on, on, um, it took me forever to find an image of female orgasm. And I realized that most of the images that we've all probably seen are, illustrate the male orgasm. This is so true in, mm. in, in medical texts. And, um, but I looked and I, I went back to Masters and Johnson and I actually discovered an image for female orgasm, which instead of just one version, had three. Mm. And interesting and you know the classic you know the the uh, you know the arousal and then the the peak and then you know the resolution but another image given for the woman besides that was one where she kind of goes up to the top and and bounces along you know like Mm -hmm. really women always do this they shake their head when i share this information and then the other that was so interesting the one that had the highest peak on the way up, there were these little pauses. Mm. And I went, those are the plateaus that we have in normal labor. There, mm-hmm. this, and, and I asked her, so women, what do you, what you do relate to this? Those little, and every, you know, they go, yeah. So what are you doing in those pauses? And they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm just trying to open up to hold more sensation or, Oh, I'm I'm just trying to change my breathing, or maybe just shifting my position a little. But the magic word for me, the one I always wait to hear, is I'm integrating. Oh. And then, then I can say, so this is our sexual nature, and it extrapolates beautifully to birth. Progress in labor is not a straight line. Neither is our orgasmic process. So now nice. we just have to change the language and the expectations in the medical world to reflect the truth about who we are and what we are. And there are new studies, like the latest study that I've seen, an excellent study, study beautifully controlled, showed that out of, um, I think it was 5,000 births, really well controlled, term, head down, singleton, you know, right across the line. And um, the average time from four to five centimeters was seven hours and and another plateau shown at eight centimeters and mm-hmm. i thought yeah, yeah i can now we have the evidence to support what midwives have have known and women have experienced all along so you're describing the entire process as orgasmic building to that that peak and not just the fact that because i've heard people say oh orgasmic birth ha that's that's a joke that didn't feel good sure. And they well, think you know that you're talking about having an orgasm at the actual moment of birth. I'm talking about, depends on how you want to look at it. You can look well, yeah, at now I'm saying, but yeah. what I do take, take care to say is you can have a lot of pain in labor and still have an orgasmic birth. 
I mean, I, I, you can have a back labor that's kind of really takes everything you've got and still reach that point of pushing your baby out with an orgasmic dimension. And the other thing, I, this, as soon as the book came out, on some chat room, I saw somebody complain and said, so not only do we have to have a natural birth, now we have to have an <laughs> I've heard that too. Yeah, actually. And I responded and said, you know, orgasmic birth is not a performance standard, but it is every woman's birthright. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the external things that can, that can influence can encourage an orgasmic experience? Oh, well, there's so many things that, I mean, I would, I could follow you through that, that a little bit, just through some of the chapters. I mean, um, being healthy really matters. It, it, mm-hmm. It's not, and that's because you have more choices about where you give birth. You know, the healthier you are, the less likelihood you've got for complications to arise in pregnancy and the more likely you are to have control over your process or at least control over where it takes place. Um, and your sexuality, you know, unraveling. Um, and so many of us have um, all types of abuse in our history. We have maybe physical, maybe sexual, certainly emotional, uh, gynecological, obstetrical abuse. And all of these things deserve respect and opportunity to, to go deep and, and, and work through. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, that's significant too in how we prepare and, you know, but just reclaiming your mm-hmm. sexuality and, and, um, yeah, reclaiming it, enjoying it through pregnancy. One of the, the final entries that went into the book, and it was a story that, that one client told, um, was using the vibrator while she was uh, in labor mm. and how, how much it helped. Like, she stopped using it when she started pushing, but, you know, while she was dilating, she definitely found the vibrator to be tremendous in terms of pain relief. And, and we thought about how that might extrapolate to a hospital birth where a woman comes in and kind of sets <laughs> stuff up on the table. And the nurses come in and go, okay, what Not kind of vibrator, party you know? we have in here? Yeah, right. And maybe so, stay back a little. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't cross that line. <laughs> no. um, so do you think that this type of experience can help heal sexual trauma, all the types of traumas you talked about just a minute ago? Yeah, well, what, what I've, I've been long been interested in intuition, like long been interested. I mean, I, since I was a child, I've had this capacity and I used to get in trouble for it, not really understanding the parameters of what I was supposed to see and not see or yeah. say and not say. Um, and, that that, that yeah. line's a little fuzzy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Uh, as I explored it more, I realized that oxytocin is a powerful agent in our intuition. And you can link that to the cycle, to times in the cycle where levels are really high, like with ovulation, if you're not on hormonal birth control. Or, um, you know, we have a natural peak at that point and, and premenstrually or at the initiation of menstruation. And I, then I studied women's dreams at this time and their their performance academically, physically. And I saw, 
you know, this is, this is something that we need to pay more attention to. And then, you know, now I know the correlations to birth as well. So, yeah, like what oxytocin seems to do at really high levels is have the power to change brainwave frequencies to a much slower and much more deeply intuitive level. You know, oh, we wow. have three primary waves. We've got our beta frequency, which is our coffee drinking, individual, fast thinking frequency that, you know, we're in a lot of the time. And then mm-hmm. we know the alpha where we slow down maybe with, with uh, listening to music or working in the garden or um, doing the dishes maybe or folding laundry. That's any kind of rhythmic activity takes us into that alpha. And even when you look at the waves, they become a lot more fluid and a lot more the amplitude, a lot more possible that they synchronize with the waves of those around us, which is one of the ways that we can see intuition. That and that's, we're literally yeah, connecting. Connecting with others. Yeah. That's part of intuition. Theta is the deep one. That's, that's the, as deep as you can go in a waking state. And there you're having these long, deep waves. And the qualities of theta that, that people comment on is that in, in theta, time really stops. And I think about all the times at births and how, you know, hours seem like minutes and minutes seem like hours and time just becomes very elastic. Yeah. And, and, and um, I notice as a birth worker, I'm not even the one in that, but syncing up with a pregnant woman. Well, like, yeah, four hours of labor will feel like 15 minutes and we're right. all just right there with her. And that's the beauty of it. And that's something else I, I love to say is, you know, when you're at a birth, you really have only two choices. And, and the first is to run the energy of fear. Yeah. And the second is to run the energy of love. Mm-hmm. And the older I get, the more I think those are the only two choices you have in life anyway. So it's a good point, huh? Yeah. So if you decide so if everybody run- in your room, everybody in your yes. birth team is running um, on waves of love. Then you're going to go on the journey with her and yeah. you're, you're going to change your brainwave frequencies too. So it's almost that the birth team also experiences the orgasmic part of the birth as well. Because it's, if it's a syncing up of synchronicity of brainwaves, mm-hmm. then we're, yeah. we're right there with her. Yeah, not, right. Exactly. Not experiencing it in her body, obviously, but... That doesn't, does that amplify then if you, if you connect with others, if that, that intuition, does that amplify your own then? Yes. I, I, there's no better school of, of intuition than, than, than birth work. <laughs> <laughs> You're like blowing my mind. <laughs> well, there's more. There's one more thing I've got to tell you about those, those theta waves is, uh, and this is a hard example, but there was a study done. Show in, in the UK showing that, that women who had been raped had flashbacks of right. their experience in, during their labors. And I, I've not been raped, but I, I'm sure all women imagine. And I, I've had trauma in my life. So when I imagine how that would be, I would fight. That's I would what I see. Like, I would fight. But it, fight adrenaline like mad but I think that then there may be a point sometimes where you go you're not going to win and you really just have to let go and you drop down to the deepest to the deepest level you can to survive and that's why 
trauma memories are embedded in theta and and there they are previous birth or or trauma before and and labor gives you an opportunity to change re-imprint those negative if you store your trauma in theta, but then you go into theta in safety at a birth, you're very, yeah. very careful with your birth yes. team and you've prepared. Yeah. Then, then you're going to that place. It's almost like wiping the hard drive, right? Not completely yes. forgetting, but you're reset rewiring, sure. reset. Yeah. 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 That's why, because I know that I've seen, I've seen, and I've had people tell me all the time that they're, they accomplished more in therapy at their birth than they did for years in, in talk therapy because of their body, the state of their body. And that talk therapists, yeah. that, that talk therapy doesn't even get to the crux of no, the pain of sexual abuse. No, you gotta, but, you've gotta do EMDR or yeah. deep hypnotherapy. And so those, I really encourage those in, in all of my work. But birth does it naturally. Birth does do it naturally. Wow. Yeah. And that's why, that's the science behind it. Cause I, I love to see like, hey, that, that does this, but then this learning the science behind why it does this that's so yummy. It's wonderful, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So um, what do you feel, um, how do you feel about unassisted birth? Because I know a lot of people, I, I don't think oh. orgasmic birth, first of all, is a fringe movement. After you've described it, it sounds like you could have it pretty much anywhere if you have your space and your mindset yeah. set up, right? Yeah. But it just seems like orgasmic and unassisted birth kind of in most people's minds are there because I guess the video I saw was a lady in a hot tub mm-hmm. looking like she was in the throes of mm-hmm. yeah. right and so we all look at that and we go whoa that's super super fringy for us <laughs> so how do you feel about unassisted birth and how does it relate to orgasmic birth there there are so many stories in orga in the book you know the second part of the book is stories and they are as varied as as we are you know like um so I think it's good to step out of that. I mean, I know the video is very exciting, but it (laughs) doesn't always look like that. Um, Unassisted birth is, I think it's wonderful. And I think that women choose it for a variety of reasons, maybe financial, um, to just have more control over the experience, the quality of the experience, the intimacy of the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, can you consider a birth unassisted if the midwife's there, but completely hands off? Could you, you know, I did this, I I did this practice once I I was teaching in Australia. Yes. And I, I was uh, my gate. I given the keynote and I was coming up on a workshop and I very often save my planning on a workshop to the last minute. Um, (laughs) it kind of gels and I know what I'm going to do, but in this case, I could not get a handle on what I was to present. And um, there were some awkward moments at the beginning of my talk. I shared information that I thought was revolutionary and it was not well met. I think because these were mostly hospital-based midwives and they, they weren't understanding really what I was suggesting. So not knowing where to go next, standing there blankly in front of 150 people, I said, um, let's all just close our eyes. I mean, I'd had no idea what I was saying. It just, yeah, just go with it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Let's all just close our eyes. And I led them through a guided visualization of birth without giving any details, but 
Imagine that you're having a baby. It's not the birth you've had before. Maybe it's been 40 years since you birthed, but see yourself looking down and seeing your big belly and now labor is beginning. So I, I took them through the whole thing, still not really knowing where I was going with it. But the questions came and the first was, okay, um, how many of you were in the hospital? Like maybe <gasps> 10 hands went up. Um, how many of you were in a birth center? And a few more. And then how many of you were at home? Like, yes. And it, it all, wow. Please look around. There is some serious intuition, some inspiration on that. Yeah, that that's true. Then, then the next questions were, um, how many of you had your midwife really close in and working with you? No. No, a few. And how about how many of you had a partner? Or a close I was going to say, my partner's right in my face. In my, in my mind, I kind of went through that exercise quickly as you're saying it. Totally. The partner's right there. But, and, but, and a good number of people did. But then how many of you were alone? And that was the vast majority. Wow. So I said, so this is the truth of what birth is. And now all we have to do is figure out how to teach to it. And I was launched. That was the workshop. Wow. So that's, that's, I think that, I mean, you study mammalian birth. Mammals don't like call the whole tribe in to give birth. Well, not, we know. We know, know you I don't mean, mess with a mother cat when she's giving birth. We know that. So why would we mess with a mother human? It just right. doesn't make sense. Right. So that's the edge between, um, between midwifery and unassisted. And, and the more midwifery is mainstreamed, and I'm certainly part of that because I have a MECA credit at school. Mm-hmm. But the more we mainstream and the more this becomes a, quote, career and not so much a calling, the more likely it is, no matter how we strive to teach non-interference, it takes a lot of maturity to really understand what that means. You know, like the way that I try to describe it to my students, I say, you know, when you go to a birth, you've got your bag of, of your solid bag or bags of stuff. You've got your tools, you've got your herbs, you've got your homeopathics, you've got oxygen. And then over here in the other hand, you have this invisible bag. And in this invisible bag, maybe was a hard outcome on the last birth or a fight you had with your partner in the morning or worry about one of your children or a bias. We've got biases, all we all do. He said, and you know, we'll always have that invisible bag, but before you cross the threshold into her birth space, you need to open it up and know what's in it. Or leave it at the door. Or leave it at the door. Okay. I, I actually tell my clients, I because I'm not the midwife or the doula or anything, but I do tell my clients I have a very busy life. I'm I'm very, very active. But when I come to your birth, just know that no matter how crazy it is to try and contact me before or how absent-minded I seem, when I come to your birth space, everything yeah. stops at the threshold. I leave everything and I come into your birth. And it doesn't matter how long I'm there, I am 100% with you. You're totally right. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of midwives don't do that. Well, and- it, it, it was a journey for me to learn that. But I've never had the pressure of being the midwife too because I've also, again, since I get to sit back and watch, I as the filmmaker, um, I see midwives bring in stuff and they'll be all angsty. And then, you know, in the kitchen, 
they'll they'll say to me, yeah, my client yesterday was in labor for three days and in a C-section, baby's in NICU. I'm really worried. And I'm like, why the heck are you bringing it into this birth? Yeah, exactly. why, why are you here? Why is your backup not here? You need sleep. But it's really hard. You know, as the midwife, you've well, just got to keep going. Also, like, like, I think it is really important for all of us to pay attention to science and know what a good study looks like and, and be skeptical of research, who funded it, what were they hoping to prove, all of this <laughs> matters, you know. But um, probably matters much more that, that we have a clear repertoire of core responses to complications, that we really understand the physiology of complications in labor and we know the most effective ways to respond, like shoulder mm-hmm. dystocia. You've got to know your stuff. And if we have that clarity, then that that can give us a level of confidence where we're not scattered and bringing in all this stuff that anxiety is never a good thing at a birth. And Mm -hmm. I think that too many women have been disappointed by their birth attendants bringing that kind of energy in. And that's one big reason for unassisted birth. But um, I have another story. Do you have a, a moment for this one? Oh, definitely. Okay. So... This, um, this mama is part of a, a group of people that I know in this area, people that I listen to music with and dance with, you know, just a fun group of people, all ages. And she and her young man um, did not want a midwife. They just flat out said no. And all the women my age in the community called me up and said, you've got to do something. Yeah. I said, no, I don't. This is not my birth. I'm not no, I'm not doing anything. She can contact me if she wants to. And she did. She contacted me and said, you know, I'm hoping maybe you can see me and help me know if my dates are right. Uh, I said, sure, let's, let's try to see you at what you think might be 20 weeks. Because I know that uterine size at that time is predictable, no matter how large yeah. the fetus or fetuses are. You can really count on a certain size and shape and the increments of um, difference per 16 weeks or 24 weeks are really dramatic. So you can really date a pregnancy well that way. Mm -hmm. So I checked her out and she was spot on. She was so happy because the sex was incredible. and She was wanting it to be (laughs) at that time. So she then at the end of pregnancy, she called me maybe around 30 weeks and said, I'm kind of wondering if my baby's head is down. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll meet with you and, and we'll check. So I found the head was down and I showed her how to feel the head down so she could reassure herself. And, and then I also taught her how to move her belly, um, move her baby within her uterus to feel the fluid because maintaining a high level of am- a normal but high level of amniotic fluid is the key to uh, continuing healthy pregnancy, even if you go over your dates. Mm. So she got that down. And then I didn't hear from her. I didn't hear from her until she was almost 42 weeks. Wow. And then she called me up and said, "Um, what should I do? I said, well, I'm not your midwife. Um, What do you think you should do? She said, well, I've, I've, I've read some stuff and I know I could induce labor, but I don't really want to do that. It just doesn't feel right to me. And I just want to trust my body and keep going. So I said, okay. 
So she went to 43 and five days and at 44 and five days, she gave birth. And, and I know what a dismature baby looks like, you know, with, with dismaturity, the actual syndrome that we worry about, the baby's all shriveled. It's lost its body fat. It looks like a wise and little old person. So I, I couldn't wait to see a picture of the baby. And the baby was pink, plump, and term. Her dates were wrong. No, they weren't. <laughs> no? No, they weren't. She no, just cooked we, some slower? <clears throat> she said after, she said, well, you know, my mama went to 43 and my auntie oh. went to 42 and a half. And I just figured this was normal for me. <gasps> now, in California, you have to turn women over at 42 weeks, regardless of your skill set, regardless of your ability to continue to assess for fetal well-being. And that's just <clears throat> the tip of the iceberg on the, the challenges facing midwives right now, which is we lack autonomy. Our protocols are dictated by obstetrics. Yeah. We really have not gotten out there and said, here's how, here's how we assess dates. Here's how we continue to assess well-being. We can estimate amniotic fluid volume by palpation. We can make note of, of fetal well-being by not only by mom doing kick counts, but listening with a fetoscope mm-hmm. for an extended period of time and noting good variability and reactivity. We have, we've, we've got the skills, but whenever a midwife gets in trouble or somebody gets a hold of a proposed piece of legislation, they call the doctors in and they impose their standard of care. Yeah. And this is an international. And, and it actually, it seems like a cyclical problem because they, they inform, they do these standards of care because the mom's not informed and not connected with her body. And yeah. so because she's not allowed to be connected with her body and informed, then she gives up control and then the doctors need more control and the moms become less empowered. And it just seems like a, a cycle. But what you did for her was you put her in the driver's seat hundred percent of the time. Well, the, in the because whole, you weren't her midwife. Well, <laughs> well, but also, you know, I teach this, these principles of, of how to be the, how to be that kind of midwife. And if you're practicing holistically, then you are in a partnership and nobody's better than anybody else. There's no hierarchy there. It's true. You're both adults, you both have life experience and skill. You have things to share. And one of the, one of the markers of the holistic midwife is she prefers to not give advice. It's, it's that moment of when the mom says, what should I do? And you say, well, what do you think you should do? Or um, mom comes in and she says, oh my God, I'm so stressed. And you say, well, on a scale of one to 10, how stressed? 10 being the highest. She goes, well, probably 9.75. Mm-hmm. Great. So then you say, well, what would it take to get it down to maybe a, a three or a two? And she says, oh, you know, a week on the beach in Hawaii, but there's no way I could do that. It's not happening. And then you say, well, is there anything that gives you that Hawaii beach feeling? And she says, well, sometimes I get it when I'm in the bath and nobody's bothering me. And you say, well, can you, can you arrange that? Can you, do you need some partner to watch the children? Can you make that happen? And she goes, yeah, I think I can. So what just happened was she articulated her own health status, found her own solution. Yeah. And and during the pregnancy, growing her own autonomy that is going to make the birth (laughs) spectacular. And 
midwifery in that model of practice is sustainable because you're not carrying everybody's expectations around yeah. with you all the time. And you're not carrying and, the, the fears and the liabilities too, but it's right. going to take a huge cultural shift to get back to that where the midwife is, I mean, I, I think about stories of, you know, the early settlers and who blamed the midwife when babies died? I don't know. It seems like yeah, our culture does blame the provider for anything that goes wrong when really they have nothing to do with with it most of the time, unless well, we have direct meddling. We do have a long way to go in terms of that kind of reform. But um, for midwives to articulate their standards, I, mean, I, I speak about this internationally and everywhere I do, it's met with agreement. And I've even experimented with groups of midwives from all over the world to see, for example, if they could knock out a protocol on post-dates. And the first time I did this, I thought there's going to be <laughs> yelling and <laughs> it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a mess. And at least yeah. we start. They did it in like 40 minutes. They all agreed. And it was a progressive, excellent protocol based on skill and intuition. It was perfect. So I know we can do it. It's yeah, just a matter of me being more at the age of wanting to be a consultant to this process. Yes, I see that. Well, with, with your example of what should I do, so many people just want, with good intention, want to sweep in and help someone, want to save them from whatever ails them. And that's born, especially, let me back up a little bit, the birth work, being a birth worker is born of a heart call. And you mentioned that earlier. Instead, it's not a, it's not a, um, a vocation, it's a heart call. And born from that heart call is this, this willingness, this wanting to serve and bless the lives of others. But, but that sometimes translates into control and coercion. Yeah, it, Sarah, you really hit it. And um, yeah, you know, like holistic care is one type of care that another type of care is, is more what you're describing. It's the humanistic model of care. And, and it's bridging. Humanism mm-hmm. bridges the gap between technocracy that, you know, where it's all about, you know, technocracy. technocracy. I love that word. That. So we got technocracy and humanism and holism. These are Robbie Davis Floyd's Ooh, um, really distinctions. Yeah. And the, the, the catch with humanism is that it, very, it is a, a model based on compassion, but also on giving advice. So you end up with codependency and you end yeah. up with burnout and you end up with far less than satisfactory outcomes, not just physically, but psychologically for everybody. So in, in the holistic model that you're saying, where it's based on that example that you gave, that you gave us just recently, what then would a midwife's role be? Would, would it be just to, you know, clean up, provide warm towels? What, what, what role does she play when she's given that much? She plays the same role. I mean, she's still probably going to be listening to the baby's heart rate. I mean, she's, midwives are going to have practice protocols that they personally believe in, in that model of care, mm-hmm. where this is my bottom line, what I need to do to feel comfortable at your birth. And there should be full disclosure of that from the get-go about what this midwife actually needs to do. <clears throat> and for most of us, it's going to be like, we're not hardly ever going to do an internal exam unless we sense that there's truly an arrest of progress, which if you're attentive enough, you can pick up the difference yep. between an arrest and a plateau, which is normal. Yep. Um, and so I know you- I thank my midwife up and down to the universe and back for what she did at my fourth birth because all she said was, I know you don't want to be checked, but I feel like something's up and maybe I could help if I knew what was up. 
And she did. She felt that lip. She had me turn position and baby was born. And yeah. I'm like, thank you for saving me for another from another hour of sure. unhelpful exactly labor. That's, yeah. that's what we're supposed to be doing. And occasionally we're full on. <clears throat> like, you know, some like you can have a birth with um, a shoulder dystocia, a neonatal resuscitation, and a partial separation of the placenta with a manual removal. I mean, you that sounds like fun. Oh, <laughs> I've seen it. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. But, um, you know, I, I mean, birth works and, and the, getting back to those points and of the beauty of birth. And um, I, I want to share a little about my school, if I can. Yes. I just want to tell people that um, I, I have a course. It's named after, after my textbook, um, Heart and Hands, A Midwife's Guide to Pregnancy and Birth. Um, you can find all this on my website, elizabethdavis.com, really simple, um, about my classes, about my school and everything I've published. But mostly I want to share that the coursework that I have is linked to the National Midwifery Institute, but it's also freestanding. So you can take my coursework. And if you later decided to enroll in NMI, National Midwifery Institute, you get credit for it. And the money you paid me is taken right off your down payment. And now I'm teaching virtually. Yeah. And, you know, at first I didn't really want to be doing that because I'm a hands-on <laughs> skills person. And I still do it pretty much like a classroom. I'm still doing demonstrations with a pelvis or with a doll or with a little placenta or whatever else that I need to show. But the beauty of it is now I have people from all over the country. And, you know, for a long time, it was just the Bay Area. Now there are people from everywhere, even around the world, are sitting in together with me. And I, I never do more than 11 people in a group. So, um, wow, that's really yeah. cool. So if you're curious about exploring the kind of midwifery I'm, I'm advocating, then get in touch with me. And this is something that even an OB could do. It's not like they would have to leave their station, just implementing some of these mindsets these philosophies. Yeah, I wish, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, no, I do have a number of students that are heading into nurse midwifery for their own reasons. And they take this class it's just to get a foundation in birth is, is um, not just normal, but um, transformational. Yeah. It's almost like the way you had the opportunity to imprint on the two most beautiful things, birth and adoption, you imprinted right there from the get go you're providing opportunity for midwifery students to imprint right from the get-go on this philosophy of autonomy, yeah. respect, love. It's the, the way that you, you check yourself on your educational path is, number one, am I becoming the kind of midwife I would want at my birth? Yeah, yeah that's a good one. And don't ever let a, any teacher take you away from your inner knowingness because in medicine, it's the opposite. You know, you, you don't talk about fear. You don't talk about like any inadequacy you have. But in midwifery, you, you, well, like one midwife said, you know, every woman has fear, but what the midwife does is she treats that fear with respect. Yeah. And treating our fear with respect is foundational to staying connected to our strength. And that's the way we need to bring midwives forward that can actually meet the, the, the needs of women that, 
that we both described. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating conversation. Um, if you want more information about Elizabeth Davis, like she said, you could go to elizabethdavis.com or you could also reach out to me at media at birthcircle.com and I'll put you in touch with all of her amazing resources, her books and, and everything. Thank you. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.